0: Hers is, the most, hers is the most compelling and tells the story. Without having all the pictures, it's like a puzzle that's only missing two or three pieces. You don't really have to have them because you can pretty much based on what you see already know how the puzzle's going to finish. Oh, there ain't no doubt somebody's got to catch him out because I think he did it but I just can't prove can't prove I think he did it, but I just can't prove it. No,
1: nobody, no crime, but I up until the day I die. Welcome to Dragon Productions' podcast channel, where the flame for justice is always burning. Continuing coverage of the disappearance of Shannon Turner from Indianapolis, Indiana, in December of 1997. In Part 1, we heard from Shannon's brother, Greg. He spoke candidly about his attempts to bring his sister home and his pursuit for those responsible for her murder. Part 1 provided an introduction to Shannon and the people that were in her immediate circle, including those who provided courtroom testimony that linked two people directly to the murder of Shannon Turner. We also covered some of the professionals who were, and still are, responsible for assuring Shannon gets the justice she rightly deserves. In Podcast 2, we continue our conversation with Greg and discuss in detail the witness testimony provided in court that links people directly to the disappearance and murder of Shannon Turner. During the 2003 trial in federal court, numerous witnesses took the stand to testify under oath. The goal of the court was to prove that the outlaws were indeed running an organization that was based on illegal activities, including trafficking drugs, weapons, stolen vehicles, and even committing murder. The testimony was to prove not only what the organization was doing, but the activities conducted to protect the organization. During that trial, witnesses testified that one of the defendants, David Foster Mays, had made admissions to killing Shannon Turner. Not only did witness testimony allege that Mays was responsible for her murder, some testimony linked another defendant, Danny Garland, as an accomplice in the disposal of Shannon Turner's body. The testimony included in this podcast was retrieved directly from court documents. Prior to going into the testimony, I want to remind the listeners of the timeline of Shannon's disappearance. December 1, 1997, Shannon places a collect call to her mother's home from the home of John Walker, a.k.a. J.W. Wednesday, December 3rd, 1997, Shannon was seen by her landlord and a service worker at her home. She was there with David Mays, and this time frame was approximately between 12 p.m. and 3 p.m. Later that same evening, on December 3rd, 1997, Shannon is working at Babes West. Because she works second shift, She would likely have arrived to work between 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. She would have left work sometime between 12 a.m. and 2 a.m. Because Shannon would have left work after midnight, the date that she would leave work would fall on Thursday, December 4th. This would be the last day that Shannon Turner was seen. Some of the individuals we're going to be discussing were introduced in Podcast 1. Their testimonies and testimonies of a few others will be discussed now in Podcast 2. There is some graphic language used in the original testimony that will be edited during the podcast. The first witness testimony belongs to Kathy Solgott. This witness was introduced in Podcast One. She was the girlfriend of Danny Garland, also known as Tubby Glide. She lived with Garland at the time of Shannon's disappearance and remained living with him for the following three years. She testified that she knew David Mays and had known him since she was 15. She stated that she knew Shannon previously when Shannon worked at her dad's bar. Solgott confirmed that she knew Shannon Turner to be the girlfriend of David Mays and further testified that in November of 1997 there were plans for a double wedding with she, Garland, Mays, and Turner. Her testimony revolves around the time period of Thursday, December 4th at approximately 3 a.m. and continues on up to Friday, December 5th right around midnight. Solgott testified that approximately 3 a.m. on December 4th, David Mays arrived at her home she shared with Garland. Mays and Garland were in the kitchen, and she overheard their conversation. David was crying and upset, and she overheard Tubby saying, How the f***? What in the f***? How in the f***? She stated they all went out to the garage, and Garland was working on a bike, and Mays had fallen asleep out there on a sofa. In the early morning hours, around 6 a.m., the three of them came inside. Maze had something to eat and went upstairs to sleep. Garland told Solgott that he and Maze had to go somewhere but he could not tell her where they were going. He did tell her they had to leave by 11am and she was to make sure he was awake. Solgott testified that Garland told her that she was not to go to work but she was to stay home in case they needed anything. She testified that Garland appeared upset and worried and that David's behavior was concerning because it was out of character. Solgott testified that David Mays and Danny Garland left the house at 11 a.m. on December 5th. At 7 p.m. that night, she received a phone call from James, Big Frank Wheeler. Frank told her that Mays and Garland were running late, but everything was okay, and Garland asked him to call her. Solgott stated that she then went into work at Hots, also known as the Beehive. At about midnight that night, she received a phone call from Garland. He told her to come home and on her way home to stop and pick up alcohol. Solgott testified that she assumed he meant alcohol to drink and offered to bring some from work. Garland clarified by stating, I need rubbing alcohol. When Solgott arrived home, Garland was there alone and she believes he had not been there long. When she asked Garland what the alcohol was for, he said, quote, because when you fire a gun, you have residue on your hands and he wanted to wipe that off. Solgott stated he was muddy and appeared tired and upset. At this time, Garland instructed her to, quote, go wash his overalls the next day because they had mud all over them. During her testimony, she also stated that the week following the incident above, she and Garland had a minor disagreement to which she stated, quote, later on that week, he said, don't piss me off, bitch. I'm tired of packing dead around this week. Solgott testified that she never saw Shannon Turner again. Greg and I had some in depth conversation regarding Kathy Solgott's testimony. The following conversation includes outtakes of what we discussed. Tubby's girlfriend, Kathy. So Shannon knew her already because Shannon worked at the girls at a bar that her family owned, according to this anyway. Do you recall how you met Shannon? She worked at my dad's bar a long time ago for a short time, and then when I lived with Bohart because yeah, they all went
0: and kentucky when shana first met david and kathy was going out with tubby she had went with david and i don't know if she went to meet his family or whatever but she had said david was from kentucky because my stepdad was originally from kentucky so she thought maybe my stepdad and him might get along and she had mentioned that they had took a trip to kentucky that was the story my sister had relayed to us whether he was actually from Kentucky, I don't know. Whether he went, they went and visited some of his family there. But now that you say that he was, after he shot this guy, he planned to leave to go to Kentucky, then it sort of lines up that he's got some kind of anchor to Kentucky.
1: This testimony from Kathy. So she's saying that a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving, Tubby talked to her about a double wedding between... He and Kathy and, and David and Shannon. Yes, it was supposed to be
0: performed by Dominic. I believe his name is Manjean. I'm not sure exactly what his rank was or what his credentials were for marrying people. If he had the power like a ship's captain or he actually was ordained, I have no idea. But either way, it didn't happen. The word is that Shannon decided that Mr. Mays wasn't the guy that she wanted to be with and that the relationship was going to be ending.
1: During Kathy Solgott's testimony, she stated that Danny Garland asked her to bring rubbing alcohol home, stating it removes gunshot residue from the hands. The question that crossed my mind was, if Shannon was already deceased, why would they be firing a weapon? I have a couple of questions about this. So if David is already there, and he's already, I'm I'm going to assume, and this is just, you know, a theory, I'm going to assume because he's already, he's so panicky, and he's upset, and he's crying, and and Tubby's response is obviously like, oh shit, what did you do? I'm going to assume at this point, he had probably already killed her, and now he needs help.
0: So, That's my assumption, and, something that is pissed off because David drug him into this.
1: Correct. So,
0: if uh, if she... Based on where it happened, there's no way they could hide it from the other outlaws or from the hierarchy because it happened on outlaw property.
1: If at that point she's already deceased, what is it that they are doing with the weapon?
0: Uh, that's the puzzlement there. I have no clue. So, it's, You would assume that... She wasn't tied up somewhere or whatever. I I don't know. Later on, you wouldn't think you would leave your victim and go to sleep, though. So that's the puzzling issue.
1: Right. Right. Okay. So then, further on, at the towards the end of her statement, they're interrogating her and ask her. You indicated you remembered those events because of something that happened afterwards. What was it that caused you to remember the incident? Did Tubby say anything to you? And she says, yes. Later on that week, he said, I don't know what happened, but he said, don't piss me off, bitch, because I'm tired of packing dead C-words around this week. So, I mean, he's, he's referencing, you know, packing around dead women, so obviously something happened. This is
0: pretty much a confession, in my opinion.
1: Pretty much,
0: and that was just one. Pretty much insinuates that he was involved and he disposed of my sister, short of a written confession. It's, pr- it's pretty close as far as I'm concerned. But Mr. Garland has yet to be charged by anybody for any involvement yet. Where Mr. Mays, they keep contesting whether or not it's double jeopardy. Even after I showed him where the state and federal are two separate entities and he can be charged under state. The same way they told me in federal court when he was acquitted that they were going to send all their information to Indianapolis and that they assured me that he could still be charged under state charges. There was more than one or two news articles that had that reference in it, too. But yet I get nothing from the prosecutor's office. They tell me after almost 17, 18 years, they just now read the transcripts. But yet, all this time, they were advising me how he could not be charged again when they never even had all the information. It's just puzzling to me how these things can go on.
1: It's puzzling that they really didn't go hard after this guy because they know... you know.
0: I told him from day one that he was the weak link. Santa had came and seen me that summer before, I'm not sure if she came with Tinka. I thought it was a different girl. But she had came, and they had stayed at my house, had some drinks. We had steaks. spent They spent the weekend there because David and Tubby were off together. Either I thought she had told me they went to Canada. So they were doing something on club business. That's how I, I knew from day one to look for Tubby because... Two guys that are riding buddies like that usually don't commit crimes by themselves. If one guy's into some shit, the other guy knows about it. So I knew from day one, and I told the police from day one, that anything David did, his boy was there with him. But yet, I got no action from them in that manner at all. He was not charged in the indictment with it, and he's never been charged in state court or any other court with any involvement in it, even though his girlfriend testified firsthand, witness of his involvement, basically.
1: You know, that's something else. I mean, this girl, she obviously wasn't dating him at that time, I actually believe she was married to somebody else at that time, but you don't just get on the witness stand in federal court and start dropping bombs like that.
0: Especially if they're lies. No one's gonna put their life on the line to testify against somebody just to tell a lie against them. Everything that that girl said in court, I believe 100%.
1: It's probably difficult for them to testify. but he Most
0: of them girls to. were abused by by whoever they were dating. Like I said, it's, they have no issues slapping their girlfriends or wives around and treating them like trash. And that's that's their general nature. But after being abused and no what the consequences are, and the severity of what could happen to them, they didn't sit in federal court and make
1: up bullshit just because they were bored and had nothing else to do. And as far as I know, I don't recall that that particular girl was even... I don't know if she had some other charges or something, maybe, but I don't recall ever seeing her name as being part of the indictment, so it's not like she was singing like a canary to clear her own name. She was there to testify... Against them. The joke is they claim that the witnesses were
0: unreliable because of drug use or whatever. But the shame is that most of these outlaws and this so-called fantastic roundup that they did where they got 43 and they made front page headline news and 80% of them had six to eight felonies or more federal charges and most of them got six years or less. So it was a, it's a sideshow joke that they actually accomplished any justice there because in the state court most of them would have got between 60 and 80 years on state charges they got slaps on their hands for all the charges that they had and in 6 or 8 years 90% of them were back on the street most of them probably went right back to doing what they were doing before they went in so they really didn't stop nothing
1: During Solgat's testimony, under cross-examination, she is asked about the timeline, that being, if David Mays arrived at she and Garland's home at 3.30 in the morning, why would the pair wait until 11 a.m. to leave? But the point here is that you went to sleep, and at 11 in the morning, what happened is they left and they stayed for the duration, and leaving that late, it didn't appear to you they were in the hurry to get anywhere? They didn't, you know, why, basically he's trying to say, why would they wait till 11 and not leave at like 4 or 5? And she said, no, David fell asleep and me and Tubby were still up. Tubby may have slept 30 minutes an hour and wanted to leave at 11 in the morning, exactly, for some reason.
0: Travel time, and agenda, daylight hours, there's no telling the reason.
1: Maybe they had to meet somebody or maybe they, he had her somewhere and he couldn't, take her out of wherever she was until somebody was gone and so they wouldn't be seen. You never know. I mean, they, I'm sure they had a reason. The bullshit is I thought they were under surveillance or
0: investigation by the feds before that. So it's amazing how he could kill somebody on outlaw property and transport a body out of the house, but yet nobody seen it. And they, them assholes got cameras everywhere, so it had to have been on the cameras there, too. Not that they would have shared them or whatever, but the Outlaw Clubhouse had cameras all over it. You could walk up and down any side street, nowhere, and get anywhere without them seeing you and knowing who you were. David and Tubby definitely know where she is. A handful of other ones knew, but apparently most of them are dead now. Frank Wheeler and John Walker, as far as I know, and depending on whoever David ran his mouth to and whoever's loose lips probably let shit slip out too over the years. There's no telling, but I know for a fact those who know her location, whether or not any other people know details of the story, I could be sure no more. Twenty three years, a lot of them were probably dead. But the incompetence of the police and the prosecutors in this case should have never went this far. Had they done their job in the first year, his ass would have been doing life. That's my whole issue with the situation. I
1: know that you know you've reached out to them numerous times about these witnesses. I mean, one there's one person, at least one that you know of, a hundred percent knows where Shannon is, and then the other one who the ma- other main witness who testified to the, you know, the day after events when they had to leave at 11 a.m. Those are two main people that they should have been following closely, interrogating, questioning. Yeah, Tubby
0: and his girlfriend, since I told him from day one. Most people know that even mafia wives know a little shit about their husbands. If you live with somebody, you're going to know some things. you can't hide everything from you. Something that big and... Like I said, a lot of people know. A lot of people know information or bits and pieces, but for sure, two people know exactly where they put her. That's David Mays and Danny Garland.
1: Well, now they got really... I mean, it's been so long. It's been 23 years. Anybody else who... I mean, a lot of people are dead now. You know, the the one main witness, Tubby's girlfriend at the time, you know, she, the detective...
0: Panel. Say you're on... The, say you're on the, Indianapolis Police Department too because I had met this detective three years ago she was still alive three years ago he had made promises about talking to all these different people how he was going to do all this and he wasn't going to be like the detective before him and he failed and turned out to be a liar and he is less efficient than the one that was before him I got nothing from this guy in three years, not a shred of nothing, not one positive piece of information, telling me he talked to anybody, heard anything, he's advanced the case, he heard this, he found this out, not one shred of nothing in three years.
1: Except to tell you that one of the important witnesses died a year ago. He emailed me that. He's been telling me that he was
0: going to go talk to three different people for the last year starting last January. I busted his hump all year long. I kept getting the Corona this, blah, blah, blah. As Soon as this, and as soon as I get to go out, whatever. After a year, he still ain't talked to nobody. Three people, he couldn't talk to nobody in a year's time. It shows how efficient he is. And these people weren't even missing. So what is my confidence that he can find a missing person? Very
1: little to none. Greg leaves us with one final opinion on the testimony of Kathy Solgott, and I have to say, I agree with him 100%. One of the most unfortunate things about her testimony is that law enforcement waited too long to re-interview her. If David Mays is ever charged in the murder of Shannon Turner, one of the most crucial witnesses will not be able to take the stand. Fortunately, they do have Kathy Solgott's testimony in federal court on record, as well as her statements made to the FBI.
0: Hers is the most hers is the most compelling and tells the story. Without having all the pictures, it's like a puzzle that's only missing two or three pieces. You don't really have to have them because you can pretty much, based on what you see, already know how the puzzle's going to finish. And that's... This version of the story of what happened that night. She wasn't the eyewitness to the incident that happened before David came there and made his confession to his buddy. But based on one plus one equals two, it don't take a genius to figure where this leads to.
1: The next witness testimony comes from Jane Doe 1. This witness was introduced in podcast one. She had an intimate relationship with David Mays a few years after Shannon's disappearance. She also knew Shannon previously as they both worked at the same establishments. In federal court, this witness testified being at a friend's house with David Mays. The three of them were discussing a girlfriend of David's, that girlfriend being Shannon Turner. Jane Doe and her friend both asked Mays if he knew if Shannon was dead and if he killed her. Mays then told them, quote, that he had to do it because he was afraid she knew too much. Jane Doe One further testified that before David left the home that night, he told both she and her friend that Shannon had been wrapped in plastic and something heavy was put on her and they would never find her body. Jane Doe One stated she had one more encounter with David Mays. She was visiting him at his mother's home in Indy, and while she was there, she stated, quote, there was plastic everywhere, on the furniture, the floors, and everything. Jane Doe 1 stated she did not have any further contact with David Mays after that encounter. Prior to her testimony in federal court, this witness was involved in a domestic violence incident in the summer of 2002. The domestic incident did not involve David Mays, but the information she had about Mays killing Turner was relayed to law enforcement and a state prosecutor at that time. The information she divulged in 2002 was shared with officials prior to the federal court case in 2003. It is unknown what the officials did with the information she gave to them. When pressed by the court, she was asked if she knew that Shannon Turner was missing. She stated yes. She was then asked why she never told the police about David's confession. She stated that she indeed did speak to the police in 2002. The witness stated she told IMPD Sergeant Claire Stibes, and she also spoke to Prosecutor Julie Ann Stein, she shared with them exactly what she had shared in her witness testimony. She also reportedly told FBI agents that Mays had a previous girlfriend by the name of Lips. She stated that Lips was reported to also have disappeared. She did not know the girl's name or if she ever reappeared. Greg and I discussed the testimony of Jane Doe 1. In our conversation, I read off some of the court transcripts regarding David's admission to killing Shannon and concealing her body as well as the incident that triggered Jane Doe-1 to disclose this information to law enforcement in the summer of 2002. When David told her he had killed her because she knew too much, do you know what he was referring when he meant she knew too much? No. But did he say that she knew too much? And she says yes. After he said that, did you remain at the apartment or home? He left first. I was still there. And did you say anything to the other girls about what you had heard? We really didn't want to hear any more about it. We didn't discuss it too much. It was just kind of a shock when somebody says something like that. Before David left, did he say anything else about Shannon Turner? Did you hear him say anything about how it occurred? So you know, I was moving around. To hear something like that, I get a little nervous, but I was moving around quite a bit, and I heard something in reference to wrapping in plastic. What did you hear David say exactly? that she wouldn't be found because her body was wrapped in plastic and something was put on there that they would never find the body. So They said, so something was put on there so the body would never be ha- found, and she says, yes. Did you have contact with David after that? I think one time I went to his mother's home. Why did you see him? It was over him telling an ex-boyfriend about our sexual encounters. So she gets mad and goes over there to his mother's house and they ask her, did you see anything that you found to be unusual? And she said there was plastic everywhere, on furniture, floors and everything. And then after that, she never had contact with David. That's because apparently she was going out with
0: an outlaw and for some reason she screwed that scumbag. What they've seen in the piece of shit is anybody's guess, but... I don't know, and her boyfriend or her husband or whatever had found out in the gist of what I got and why she was there explaining the situation to Mr. Mays. I don't think my sister was his first victim, and I'm 100% sure she won't be his last victim if he's not stopped.
1: Most of this incriminating information came out during that federal trial. Were there any, I mean, when they were they were what were they doing from 96? January of 98 until, did they have any witnesses? I'm not sure how many witnesses you have. One witness
0: that claims she told us Sergeant Claire Stibes or something. I never heard the woman's name. No one ever told me that this witness ever talked to this woman and I've never seen that woman testify. So I don't know who this Claire Stibes is or who this other detective was that she claims was there when she made this statement. No one ever said nothing about what was said or done. I think it was the one that was at a, a, a shelter for abused women or something. There's so many people that told this story and to so many other different people. Way back in the beginning, within the first year, they knew this. They knew from the day she disappeared. I went back and forth to Indianapolis 200, 250 times in another in another dance clubs, Slept in my car in the wintertime, asking questions, trying to find out who David was, who Tubby was. All I had was David and Tubby. That's the only two names I had. I eventually found out who they were. And most of the people that talked about David said he was a piece of shit. They said Tubby, on the other time, ta- on the other hand, was wasn't half bad most of the time. That he was a pretty good guy. So I'm pretty sure. David drug his ass into this shit. He didn't ask for it, but he was drug into it. And by this little biker code, he couldn't say shit. But that has nothing to do with being a human being and doing the right thing after all this time.
1: Jane Doe One was involved in a sexual relationship with David Mays sometime in 2002. It was during this time frame that Mays likely made the admissions to killing Shannon and concealing her body. While on the stand in federal court, She was asked, if you knew Shannon Turner was missing, and Mays had made these admissions to not only killing her, but also concealing her body, did you tell anyone? Jane Doe 1 stated yes. During the same year, 2002, sometime over the summer, Jane Doe 1 was the victim of a domestic battery. That incident did not involve Mays being the attacker, but during the investigation of that incident... Jane Doe 1 told IMPD Sergeant Claire Stibes and Prosecutor Julianne Stein about the admissions of David Mays. At some point prior to the federal trial, she also relayed this information to FBI Agent Hawks. If she relayed this information in the summer of 2002, and the federal court indictments did not occur until approximately the spring of 2003, this means members of law enforcement namely Sergeant Stibes and Prosecutor Stein, were aware of David's admissions almost a year before the federal court trial. Greg and I had some conversation about that incident as we kind of go over a little bit of the court transcript. Did you ever talk to an FBI agent about the things David told you about Shannon? And she said, yes, I talked to Larry Hawk. What year did you tell Larry Hawks that David Mays told you about Shannon's death? What year did you tell Larry that it occurred? When you talked to the FBI agent, what year did you tell that agent that David made those? So I guess she got the year, she accidentally got the year wrong. Yeah, they were trying to discredit everybody on the
0: smallest little detail, but 90% of the gist of their conversation was dead on money. They can say what they want. No one cares if it was Tuesday or Wednesday, whether the sun out or whether it was raining really, unless it's pertinent the evidence or whatever. It's just minor detail, fill-in bullshit. But the majority of her statement and her testimony was exactly what happened. They were just trying to confuse people and make them look stupid.
1: Yeah, what's interesting is they were trying to basically say that these witnesses are impeachable because either they have alcohol issues or drug issues or criminal histories. All of these women, it seemed like, or and even the guy that testified... They all wanted to discredit them, but yet... But every one of the scumbags
0: they were defending were right there doing the coke and the meth and drinking and all the shit with the same witness that was testifying against them. They wanted So to how is he credible, but they're not.
1: <laughs> and they used these people's additional testimony for all of the, you know, illegal enterprise so that they could also, you know convict them on that. I mean, these were good enough to convict the defendants on the RICO stuff, but they're not good enough to convict Mays of the murder charge.
0: Yeah, that's the crap of it. Welcome to my world. 23-year nightmare. is with me every day. Her last five minutes are in my head every day. I didn't ask for them to be there. this is there. And they don't go away. 240-pound piece of shit and The word I got was he beat her to death in J.W.'s kitchen. And by the time the the ignorant police department got a search warrant, six to eight years later, and went to that house, the whole kitchen had been totally remodeled from the studs, the floor, everything was gutted out, all new stuff. They claimed they found no evidence of nothing. Eight years later, it's not surprising. I told them from day one, that was the last place she had contacts from. That's where she was staying at. It was incompetence from day one. And then they wanted to treat me like I'm some bad guy. I I'm, I'm, i can't be dealt with because I'm rude and obnoxious. But I refuse to be dismissed by some lazy ass who's too lazy or too ignorant to do his job when the whole picture's right in front of him. Yes. My sister deserved better than that. My sister never did nothing. To nobody to warrant what happened to her.
1: The next testimony comes from Jane Doe 2. This individual was not introduced in Podcast 1. Jane Doe 2 knew Mays for a length of time and personally knew Shannon Turner to be the girlfriend of David Mays. She interacted with both of them during social engagements and when David brought Shannon to her home. Jane Doe 2 testified that Mays and Shannon typically appeared happy together But the last time she saw them at a social event in November of 1997, she thought maybe there was some animosity between the couple because they were not as affectionate as they usually are. Jane Doe too also stated that at the time she saw them last, the wedding plans had been called off by Shannon. In the summer of 1999, at an undisclosed location, she and David Mays ran into each other. When she got out of her vehicle and she and Mays were conversing, she noticed he had in his hand a flyer of Shannon Turner, and that he, quote, folded it up in a circle. Jane Doe, too, testified that the flyer that David Mays had in his hand was a laminated missing person flyer of Shannon Turner. When asked by the court if she had seen Shannon Turner during this time frame, she denied seeing Shannon Turner and stated that she was aware that she was missing. As she and David Mays continued to exchange small talk, she asked Mays, Is that Shannon? I can't believe they haven't found her yet. She states that David Mays responded, stating, Yeah, that can happen to anybody. When the court asked her to state exactly what David Mays had said to her, Jane Doe, too, replied, saying, David told her, No, they haven't found Shannon yet, and it can happen to anyone, including you. While on the stand in federal court, she was asked to identify David Mays in the courtroom. Jane Doe, too, stated, Quote, he is the smiling person back there in the blue shirt. Greg and I really didn't go into detail about this witness testimony. Her testimony was pretty self-explanatory, but it did trigger a reaction, a recollection of the time that he met David Mays face-to-face in federal court.
0: The had the gall to, to walk past me in the courtroom and wink and smile at me. But I was instructed that I couldn't I could say a word to him. I couldn't even look at them or they'd throw me in jail for federal contempt. I had an FBI agent sitting on each side of me and one sitting behind me. That's the only thing that kept me from jumping on them and choking his ass out in federal court. Because since the day she went missing, I have not thought about nothing but putting my hands on him the same way he put his hands on her. My opinion on that is the relationship between victims and the police department is a disgrace most of the victim's family are treated worse than the the suspect i'm in the victims advocate group with family members who have murder victims and about 60 to 80 percent of them say the same thing the treatment by the police is appalling they got no trust with the cops they got very little communication or contact they're never updated on anything, and it's no wonder that people get away with murder with that type of police work. In this case, his PO, the supervisor, FBI agent, prosecutor, and all three police detectives who had this case all admit that they believe David Mays is guilty, but yet Mr. Mays still walks unpunished, baffling to me. It's like waking up in an episode of The Twilight Zone. It's my understanding that David was, David got his ass mopped by some of his fellow brothers because he lost a little black book that I gave to the feds. I was reassured by Larry Hawks that my sister would get justice if I turned over this piece of evidence to him that would help him make their case. Mr. Hawks got what he wanted and I got nothing. My family got shit on. They wouldn't even let me testify because they deem my attitude as aggressive and didn't want to stir nothing up. I was originally scheduled to testify and then they said I, I was too hostile. So they put my sister on the stand who knew jack shit about nothing
1: except bits and pieces of a conversation about her last phone call. They have all this evidence. They have the book. They have the outlaws. They have the witness statements. They have this guy's rap sheet where he's done nothing but violence, not even counting the things that he's probably done in the course of his role as the enforcer that nobody knows about. It's
0: mind-boggling. There's other stories about him killing other other people. I don't know. Like I said, with nothing being verified, it's hard telling. But he damn sure ain't no Sunday school...
1: So then he gets out of prison and he's on supervised release, violates. Just this last year, he's got three positive drug results for cocaine in a month's time. And then he also has that felony domestic battery. So he's obviously still up to his old, you know, drugging and beating up women. Yeah,
0: real tough guy. Throw the line, slap your old lady around. Nothing else to do on the Friday night.
1: To me, it seems like this is somebody they would want off the street. They would, want every, they would want every witness, every piece of evidence just to finally nail this guy. But yet he's still... Is it that they don't care? Or do they... Is something... They have some kind of corruption going on? Is somebody scratching somebody's back? It doesn't make any sense. Apparently a
0: potential serial killer is of no issue to... Marion County Prosecutor's Office or to IMPD because everybody whose job it is to do something about it chooses not to do nothing about it, but yet in the same breath tells me that I'm not allowed to do nothing about it either. So he stole everything from her and he's taken a third of my life too, yet he's still free to continue his criminal lifestyle untouched, or protected, whatever the situation may be. But there's just so many unanswered questions, how this type of crap could go on, and how many other cases it goes on in. How many other people are suffering like I am because of an incompetent police worker or detective or because of the treatment?
1: The next witness testimony belongs to Jane Doe Three. She was not introduced in Podcast One. During her 2003 testimony in federal court, Jane Doe Three testified under oath regarding David's connection to Shannon's disappearance. She testified that she knew Shannon Turner from a few places where they had both worked as dancers and also knew her by the nickname of Bubbles. Jane Doe Three describes the last time she had seen Shannon Turner – they were both at the home of another outlaw member named Dominic, who was known to conduct weddings for outlaw members. She stated that while she was at Dominic's home, she entered the kitchen and Shannon was there. In her testimony, she stated, quote, Shannon had two nasty black eyes and bruises on her arms. Upon further questioning, Jane Doe three stated the two of them were not in the kitchen very long before David entered, and using the C-word expletive, Told the two of them to get back into the living room. David had grabbed Shannon by the arm and went back to the living room, and Jane Doe III followed them. While in the living room with David and Shannon, David asked Dominic to marry he and Shannon the following morning. Jane Doe three states that she had not seen Shannon since that occurrence. When asked by the court if she had any other conversations after that with David Mays, she stated that Mays told her that Shannon probably ran off with a truck driver. In the courtroom during the federal trial, an attorney discusses the evidence presented, listing off the facts revolving around Shannon's disappearance. Greg describes the incident where the witness refers to the bruises and black eyes she witnessed on Shannon. He also goes on to give a heartbreaking account of his sister's personality and the steps he must take to bring her home. The extrinsic corroboration is a number of reasons. First of all, the fact that Shannon Turner is missing and has been missing since December of 1997. There obviously is nobody to introduce and you will hear witness and receive witness testimony to the admissions that Mr. Mays made as to killing her. You will also hear testimony that Shannon, in fact, was bruised, had black eyes in the months prior to her disappearance. You will hear that she had contacted her family about coming home for the holidays did not make it home, and in fact was last seen at her residence in December of 97 and has not been seen since.
0: Yeah, some girls that, uh, I forget who it was, there's two or three girls that claim that they knew her that uh, were interviewed and had seen her and were trying to have a conversation with her and David came in the room and told them to leave or whatever, that she wasn't allowed to talk to nobody or some crap. And like I said, my sister wasn't the type to let somebody put their hands on her.
1: So that might explain why she ended things with him because she's not going to take that kind of... She didn't want his ass no more. My sister was a free spirit.
0: She didn't want to be controlled no more. And if he was putting his hands on her like the gutless punk that he is, she wouldn't tolerate that shit neither. She's not one of those women that would be with somebody for 25 years where they abused them. She didn't have that personality. She was way too much a woman for that gutless punk. He was half a man, if that. She got cheated in life. Her childhood was far from fantastic or great. And to have her life stolen from her at 33 by this scumbag, she got totally cheated. If there's anything like reincarnation or the such, she's definitely one that deserves to have another chance. She loved life. Most people go through life just living their life. But she was actually one of those people who loved life. And most people she met loved her. There's so many people that just waste their life. She was really one who enjoyed life. She did like traveling. She liked going different places, seeing different things, meeting different people, different experiences. And that's part of the reason she ended up with this piece of shit. Because she got enticed by the biker lifestyle and the motorcycles and whatever. Mm-hmm. It seems to attract a lot of girls for some reason. Whether just it, whether in the biker culture or just the average guy who's got a motorcycle or whatever.
1: You know, to me it just seems like, like she just kind of dug that biker bad boy kind of look. I mean it's not unusual a lot of women kind of have that thing for that bad boy look but i kind of get the feeling that she didn't have a full maybe initially a full grasp of just how deeply rooted this person was in in a, a motorcycle gang a dangerous motorcycle i
0: don't gang. think so i don't think she had no clue from when i seen her up here like i said she must only known his punk ass about two months when she was up here with him then. But she was like, oh, well, she knew a little because she seen, she knows me and she knows I don't take no crap from nobody. I never have. And she seen that me and him were about to have words because I offered him a beer and he thought I disrespected him by calling him Big Dave. I was just trying to be friendly to him. But he got in the attitude and acted like he wanted to fight or something. And I wasn't going to back down. I didn't give a shit who he was or what pants he was wearing or what bar we were in. If he wanted to throw down, we could have went nose to nose right there. I had no issue with it. I was just trying to be friendly to the guy and offer him a beer. But she was waving me off with her hand or whatever that, like she didn't want me to start no issue with him. So I don't know if she had an inkling of who he was or what he was then or not. But I'm not that guy. I've never been afraid of somebody because of who they were, because he had a tattoo on his face, or because he had six brothers. And she knows that's how i always been. I didn't want no trouble with this guy, but he didn't seem like he wanted to be too friendly neither. So I don't know if she knew that he was violent then, or, or she just thought that he was a different caliber than me, or whatever, I don't know. But I ain't never been one to run away from nobody. I'm not no tough guy, but I'm not I'm not the guy that's gonna run from somebody neither. And I can't be scared off in this situation with my sister neither. You don't get to murder my sister and then play tough guy and think I'm gonna run the other way because you're scary and you got a whole bunch of friends that don't work like that with me. I offered David the opportunity to come get his book. He wasn't man enough to come get it. Like I said, I'm not a 120-pound woman, neither. I'm not no hard ass. I'm just a guy who loved his sister, and I believe she deserved better, and I'm willing to sacrifice whatever it is I have to sacrifice to make sure that she gives what she deserves, and that's to be brought home and to get some justice. I didn't want no part of this shit. I knew nothing about an outlaw before she started dating his ass. I could have went through my whole life and never had no issues or never learned a thing about them. I'd have been perfectly fine, but this shit was brought to me. I didn't ask for it, but it's here, and it's mine to deal with.
1: The next testimony belongs to John Doe One. This OMC member testified in federal court describing two incidents where Mays admitted to killing a female, suspected to be Shannon Turner. The incidents he described occurred around Christmas of 1997, just weeks after Shannon disappeared. This timeline is confirmed by the witness recalling other events. Remember, in the beginning of Podcast One, we discussed an incident in which Mays shot and injured Gary Hughes at the B&B bar in January of 1998. John Doe One testified that while at another OMC member's home, he and David Mays were engaged in conversation. John Doe One stated, quote, Mays was telling me about how distraught he is over the fact that he killed this girl and he's having trouble dealing with it and blah, blah, blah. And then some girls that were outlaw wives or old ladies or whatever come filtering in the room and he's still talking about how he killed the one he loved. I said, you know, shut up, David. Just shut up about this shit. I said, you know, why don't you just go turn yourself in if you're going to continue to talk about this in front of everyone? I didn't really want to hear it. David Mays then replied, Don't worry about them other girls. I killed the one I love. End quote. John Dowan goes on to discuss another occasion where David Mays had made a similar statement regarding killing a woman. On this occasion, the two of them were at a bar called the King of Clubs. John Dowan stated, quote, Mays invited me out to his car, and he's again all wild looking. I asked him what's going on. David says, You know, I just. I'm still having problems dealing with this, you know. I killed this girl, and he asked me, "Do you have any work for me to do?" I said, "No, I don't really have anything for you to do." David was standing there holding his stomach and asked me, "Well, do you have anybody that needs killed? I've got the craving." End quote. This witness testified that this incident occurred at the bar right around the same Christmas party time as the first incident. John Doe once stated that the business relationship between he and Mays was short-lived as David ended up getting in trouble for shooting someone in a bar. In the same explanation, the witness stated, Shortly after Mays shot the man at the bar, another man and I helped him leave town. The other man gave him a van and Mays said he was going to Kentucky. So the shooting the witness is referencing is when David Mays shot Gary Hughes at the B&B Tavern, January 28, 1998. Both of these incidents between the witness and May's likely occurred within weeks of Shannon's disappearance. He was an associate
0: of theirs that provided certain items to him. There's really no secret he was selling them weed.
1: Right. So he's at one of the other outlaw members' apartment, according to this interrogation. He and David are there, so they're doing their business, whatever, and David starts telling him how distraught he is over the fact that he killed this girl and he's having trouble with it and blah, blah, blah. So I'm saying, he readily admits it himself. Everybody,
0: everybody knows this, but yet, he's still walking around a free man.
1: Right, and then another occasion, they were at a club and David was there. So this was a couple of weeks after she disappeared because this guy says, it was right around Christmas party time, our business relationship was short-lived because David ended up getting in trouble for shooting someone in another bar. So this was December of 97.
0: Somewhere within a month or so after she disappeared is when this first incident happened, and he ended up going to prison for two or three years off of the bat. That's the incident where they didn't save the gun. Oh, yeah. Most likely it's on his mind. I hope he sees her face every night he closes his eyes. She don't deserve to forget what he did to her.
1: Likely one of the most disturbing testimonies was that of John Doe 1. In part of his testimony he states that while he was outside the bar with May's, May's was all wild looking. It is this testimony that we get a glimpse of the most chilling part of David's personality. So now you're also mentioning to us that there was another occasion where David mentioned something about his girlfriend. Do you recall when that occurred? In the same bar he invited me out to his car and he's all again all wild looking what's going on he says you know I just I still having problems dealing with this I killed this girl he said do you have any work for me to do no I don't really have anything for you to do he said well do you have anybody that needs killed I've got the craving and he's holding his stomach so so how many occasions is now that now four where he's admitted to killing
0: At minimum, he asked this guy repeatedly if he wanted him to be his bodyguard or if he needed anybody that he wanted killed. It shows his propensity for violence. This guy's got no conscience, and since he got away with it so long, he thinks he's untouchable. I'm sure he's got more than one murder that he hasn't been convicted of yet neither. Like I had told you earlier, I had received a letter from a murder victim in Indianapolis's mother who swears that Mr. Mays had killed her son, and it's still an open homicide case in Indianapolis. He was murdered in 1998 in his apartment. This woman had contacted me over the internet after seeing my sister's story and David Mays' name associated with it, and she swears on everything that she believes in that he murdered her son but yet he's still out and about. The question is how he seems to be untouchable or why he's being protected. That's the big question. By who? Why? Who would like to see a news station or something that somebody cares that a potential serial killer has been getting away with murder for 23-plus years, maybe, before that. He may have killed people before her. There's no way of knowing, but he's definitely killed people after her, and he was involved in a questionable motorcycle accident, too, where there was a death, and a whole bunch of suspicious, hokey shit, involving an accident report and such. But it seems to be of no concern. When you say something to people, they don't want to hear it. You tell the prosecutor, he don't want to say nothing to you. You tried to talk to the cop who wrote the accident report. He didn't want to say nothing. He wanted to know why I was looking into it. And two, three weeks later, suddenly the report amended when it was open for almost a year or more before I started looking into it. It's just too much hokey bullshit. Too many unanswered questions. And the biggest question is how Mr. Mays is allowed to get away with all this shit all these years and go unscathed. I need somebody to ask the right person and make people accountable for their lack of action or their lack of progress in this case and to explain themselves, explain themselves how this is allowed to happen and how they can justify how this crap has happened. I need somebody to be held accountable so it doesn't happen to some other family. We're talking about justice here. And if you're a prosecutor, based on the Marion County model that there shows on the prosecutor's office's page, is a crock of shit. When it's applied to this case, where their mission statement is, based on what they've done for Shannon in this case, is a complete lie. And I've called them out on that before, too. But they don't want to comment. She was a citizen of Indianapolis. She was a resident. She deserves the same justice, the same rights, and the same application of the law that anybody else deserves. She's not getting it.
1: The next witness testimony comes from Detective Hartnett. He was the detective that worked on Shannon's case early on in the investigation and was responsible for her case for at least the first five years. During his courtroom testimony, he was asked, based on your investigation to date, who was the most viable suspect? Hartnett replied, David Mays, and that Mays was his primary suspect. Hartnett stated that he had met FBI Agent Hawks during the course of his investigation, and the two of them had discussed the evidence. But there was evidence that Agent Hawks had not shared with him, but agreed it would be provided after the trial in federal court had concluded. Hartnett agreed that he was not yet aware of whether or not FBI agents Hawks had developed any witnesses regarding the murder of Shannon Turner. Hartnett was asked if he had interviewed David Mays during the course of his investigation and he stated yes he interviewed him in February of 1998. At that time David Mays did in fact state that he and Shannon Turner were in a relationship. He told Hartnett that he had begun a relationship with her in early 1997 and the relationship continued through the summer and they had broken up towards the end of the fall of 1997. David Mays told Detective Hartnett that the last time he saw Shannon Turner was December 3rd, 1997. When asked by the court if David was concerned about Shannon being missing, Detective Hartnett said, Not necessarily, and added that David Mays did not even question him about his efforts to locate Shannon. When asked by the court if Mays ever indicated any knowledge of where Shannon might be, Hartnett stated, quote, Mays indicated that at times she was prone to travel, but he did not recall offhand if Mays ever mentioned if she had any intentions to travel in early December.
0: He just made this shit up to throw suspicion off of him. He claims she could have ran off with a trucker. He's a gutless lying sack of crap. My main focus, make sure that he gets what's coming to him and to make sure that he doesn't kill nobody else. You kill somebody and then wink and laugh at somebody right in the freaking courtroom, it shows you ain't got no problem doing it again. On top of begging that other guy to find somebody pretty much for him to kill, there's no doubt in my mind. It's just a matter of time. Don't take no rocket science to figure out what's coming next and what's the excuse gonna be to the next person's parents or their family. You ain't got no excuse, because this piece of shit should have been locked up. Truthfully, this piece of shit should have been locked up before you even met my sister. Had he been charged with any of this crap in state charges, he'd have been doing 80 to 100 years. He wouldn't have been out there assaulting a woman last November.
1: They invested so much money and so much time. Like, they've been investigating those guys from... 97 or earlier to 2002. Yeah, that's what they (laughs) claim. You know, so you got 10 years of investing billions of dollars into following these guys around and trying to bust up their organization. Then you give them like, you give them like five years. The Fed act
0: like they did something. They didn't do shit. It was a temporary band-aid.
1: With what, three charges? He was resentenced for something because they offended his rights, and so he appealed, and they. six of the witnesses mentioned in this podcast had close or frequent contact with the outlaws and it's likely they would have never approached law enforcement on their own out of fear for their own safety. So if not for the federal trial in Ohio, even less information would be known about the disappearance of Shannon Turner. Six different people provided crucial pieces of testimony in federal court. Five of them known to David Mays each relayed their own conversation they had with him regarding Shannon and one of them was the detective that interviewed him in February of 1998. Each testimony we discussed is a piece to the puzzle in the disappearance of Shannon Turner. The last crucial pieces to that puzzle are needed to bring Shannon home, hold someone accountable, and allow the family to heal. Greg has seen little to no results from law enforcement, but I have a feeling that Greg Turner will never give up until he brings his sister home. In this case, you have a man with a reputation of violence. He's notorious for hurting people. He has a propensity to assault people and kill people.
0: When you CDN. shoot at people and place bombs and all the other yes. shit, that pretty much explains who you are.
1: When you're shooting people, you're beating yeah. people up, you're beating people up.
0: You can't change the spots on the dog. Till that dog is put down, it's going to be the same dog.
1: And then you have five, six statements from different people who have all pretty much said the same thing and none of these people were together when this person was saying stuff. These are just different people that this guy has admitted that he's killed this girl and he's sobbing and crying and and playing crybaby over it when he probably doesn't mean any of it. He's just...
0: Probably more than that too. The detective was supposed to talk to any inmates that Mr. Mays housed with and all this other crap but the detective lied to his ass. I don't believe he's talked to nobody in the three years that he's had her case. Another year that he's burned up. Well, Mr. Mays is out there enjoying his life and my sister's laying there somewhere like garbage, wherever this piece of crap put her. Just like a math teacher who wants to see your math problem and how you got from A to C, she wants to see the work. I would like to see Detective Burton's work. We don't want to forget Miss Gina Skelton. She was involved in the case where David shot the guy outside the bar. Uh, she got involved with Mr. Mays, the woman I dealt with for almost 20 years. I was in her office four or five times with her face-to-face. We had meetings. She knows me quite well. She's been the one to advise me for the last 17, 18 years how Mr. Mays can't be charged against blah, 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 but yet the witch tells me after 17 years, she never even read the transcript. So how are you going to tell me your opinion on the case when you don't even got no idea what the case is? After I called her ass out, I'm not reading the transcripts, then she's going to bump me and kick me to Mr. Ross about six, eight months ago. She didn't want to talk to me or deal with me no more.
1: So for 20 years, this woman has been... Involved, but then she never, she's a prosecutor. Oh, yeah. And she never read the transcripts from the federal case of all this testimony.
0: Nope. Nope. Yeah, she didn't want to deal with me no more. She dumped me off on Mr. Ross, thinking that he can handle me. And like I explained to him a long time ago, the more they jerked me around, and the longer it takes, the less polite and the less friendly I get. I've tried to contact the last three prosecutors. Carl Breezy, whoever was before. Right now the guy's name is Ryan Mears, I believe. And the guy before him. But yet, you can never talk to the, the big guy. Apparently they're like a king or a queen. They're shielded and protected. You never get to talk to them. Even though they were elected by people who voted for them, they're not available to those people. Same with the mayor. I've called the last three Ford mayors. Never got a hold of none of them. They refused to talk to me. I wrote the last four governors. starting with O'Banion, Mitch Daniels, Mike Pence, and whoever the monkey is in charge right now. Everybody from the ATF, FBI. DEA, America's Most Wanted, Unsolved Mysteries, Nancy Grace, a TV, anybody you can think of. Right now she's on John Wallace's In Pursuit Missing page, contacted 3040 Indiana County Sheriff's Office and said if they find an unidentified body, it might be my sister's. And Mr. Mays and Mr. Garland dumped her somewhere.
1: What did ISP say? I know you reached out to the state police. They referred me back
0: to IMPD, said they were handling it. And I said no the hell they weren't. It it kills me that everybody that I write to or whatever tells me it's IMP, IMPD's job. The thing is, if they were doing their job, I wouldn't be bothering these people. I would have no reason to bother nobody else. I tried repeatedly to get her case moved from missing persons to a homicide detective or a cold case because everybody knows from day one she was murdered. They keep giving me the bullshit because her case is open that she's a missing person, and that's why it's still with missing persons. I call horseshit.
1: Unfortunately, I think it's pretty evident. I mean, I understand from their legal standpoint that they need proof of it being a homicide, but I think it's pretty evident from... They waited too long to
0: get the proof. Had they took their ass to JW's house in the first month or two, they would have found the proof. The reason they ain't got no proof is because they're incompetent. That's why they don't got no proof. It's a little hard to go get evidence 10 years later when your light bulb
1: finally lights up. I would think with the witness testimony and if they did some interrogations, especially, I mean, there's one more person. There's an accomplice that was named. We get the right person and you make it,
0: crucial to him or make it uncomfortable enough for him then there's no reason why he he wouldn't sacrifice that sack of shit this was all done on David and David brought everybody else into it and that's a lot of the reason that the outlaws got the heat they got during the time they got because the feds had the book they got and it all was because David wasn't man enough to come get his book I offered David to come get his book more than once from me David wasn't man enough to come get his book. That's why his book went to the FBI. The story I heard that he got kicked out of the club because of it, because that's a big no-no. If you lose club property, it's your responsibility to get it back. And when you lose something that important that shows all your connections to everybody else throughout the United States and wherever, that's a major hit. Mm -hmm. I had wrote a letter to the clubhouse back in the day and offered them the book in exchange for Mr. Mays and Mr. Garland. I expressed that it's better to lose two fingers than to lose your whole hand, but they would have none of it. They chose to protect those two maggots, and so I chose to give their book to the feds, even though it was a lie, because I got nothing in return. My sister still got no justice. She's still laying out there somewhere, and this piece of shit on other women. The best way I can honor my sister is to stop Mr. Mays from killing another victim. We're going on 24 years. I find no joy in half the things in life no more. Since the day he stole my sister, it took something from me. He took a piece of me that I can never get back. That's why I refuse to quit. Until I'm dead or he's dead. Until then, I'm not going to stop. I can't. I'm the only voice she's got. I'm yelling, murder, murder. And all they can see is some old lady complaining about how kids are running across their lawn. It's a freaking disgrace. It's a shame that somebody would have to get justice. Somebody would have to go from a victim to a defendant just to get justice for their family member, because beyond that, there's no other choice but just letting them get away with it. Do you do nothing, or she gets away with it? And then when people ask you, what'd you do about it? She murdered your sister, what'd you do? You get to tell them, I did nothing. Unfortunately, I can't live with that. I can't go to my grave, I would never get no peace. I'd never have no peace. Knowing that I didn't do something about this. I'm willing to sacrifice to see that she gets justice.
1: I think they forget there's a human on the other side. And not just a case. There's a victim, there's a human, there's a victim's family. You know, it it would be less insulting to both Shannon and you... If, these officer, if this detective or this prosecutor would just sit down with you and tell you something. I mean, I understand they're trying to protect the integrity of this case. I would think after all these years, with all the contact that you've made to them, reaching out to them, pleading with them, begging with them, asking them for something, and knowing that the only thing that you're after is justice for your sister, it would seem like the the moral thing to do would be to sit down with you and treat you like a human being. Treat you
0: like- Well, you better know. Treat you, you like- You better know. So this year, Mr. Turner's off to begging.
1: I mean, how hard is that? I understand they're busy, but they also, it's their responsibility. They take an oath. They're there for the victims. You are a victim of this because this is your family give somebody some dignity to sit down with them and say look this is what I can tell you this 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 there are things I can't for whatever reason but this is what we're doing show you put some effort into maybe show you what they've done to some degree with whatever they can I mean just treat people with dignity and and when somebody's calling you because their sister disappeared 23 years ago and is likely was murdered and you're just slamming the phone down on them, what kind of person are you? What kind of person is that? Like, I don't even know you. I wish I could help you more, but it would be like, right now I just say, okay, slam the phone down on you. I I could never do that to somebody. They have
0: to... They've done it to me over and over. They have to understand. I've had no contact. I've had no contact with them five, six, eight years at a time. They never bothered to call my family, never nothing. From day one, they've shit on me. And it's affected my life. It's affected everybody's life. I lost a little brother on her sixth anniversary of her disappearance. My little brother was shot and killed in his own bedroom. Crime committed, none. Nobody even called the police. My mother called a Christless counselor because my stepfather was in the hospital dying of lung cancer and my brother was drinking. She called the crisis counselor. For some reason, they called the cops. Five minutes later, my brother was dead, 33 years old too, because it's justifiable. So you tell me who the bad guy really is. To me, I can't tell no more. Three days later, my stepfather died I buried my brother and my stepfather the same day. That happened on December 3rd, 2003. That's the load I get to carry. But no one seems to give a shit. Because to the prosecutor, it's just about numbers. Same with the cop. He's got 15 cases. If he closes eight, fine. If he don't, oh well. He gets 10 more in, in the next few months or whatever. And when he quits and retires, he closed some, he didn't close some. And they ain't nothing but numbers to him. But at the end of those numbers, there's real families. There's real heartache. Not ever knowing what happened to your loved one. It's not shit nobody wants to carry. Even for a tough guy, Tubby, I don't think it's too easy for them to carry what he's been carrying. He knows it, and I know it. He can play that hard ass all he wants, but he didn't kill her. But him walking around with that knowledge all these years can't be easy on him neither. It's time for him to let loose. That scumbag locked up ain't worth it. Nobody's fault but his own that he's been in prison probably the 15, 16 years out of the last 23 that's on that piece of shit, because that's who he is. 100%, he will kill somebody else, no doubt. That's what I asked the prosecutor, what's he gonna tell the next victim's family? What's he gonna tell the next girl's parents? That he's so sorry, he tried, but he couldn't do nothing? That's very little consolence to somebody who's lost their only child, or their, their daughter, or their son. Nobody wants to hear your bullshit about how you tried the best you could. If I throw a brick through your front window and I tell you I'm sorry, does that fix your window? Hell no, it don't. Your window's still busted. Only thing that's going to fix that window is action. Like I said, none of them got to go to sleep and wake up every morning and carry the load I got to carry. It wasn't their sister. Until it knocks on their door and they know what it feels like, they got no clue. Back in the beginning, I was—I got hooked up with a, a search group, something like Texas Equus Search or whatever that's called. Uh, some group called MJA Inc. or something that contacted me over the internet to get involved in cases that got reward money posted. Me and my little brother went down there and met these people and dug in the field that they claimed they had information on somewhere off of Pendleton Pike in Indiana, about 30 or 40 miles out of town. And that's when the reality really hits you of what's going on when you're digging in a field for the body of your sister, hoping that you find her, but then also hoping you don't. It's my reality. I just want to bring my sister home. Whatever happens after that happens. But I want my sister home. She deserves that.
1: During this podcast, you heard a portion of a conversation where Greg mentions another unsolved homicide. The family of a homicide victim saw a story about David Mays being a possible suspect in the disappearance of shannon turner the family reached out to greg because they have strong reason to believe that david mays murdered their loved one the victim in that case is brian michael donahue II. he was murdered in his south side indianapolis home on the evening of march eighteenth nineteen ninety eight the following day on march nineteenth he was found by his father brian was shot once in the back of the head his murder still remains unsolved to this day, but detectives believe that the perpetrator was somebody that Brian knew. If you have any information that leads to the arrest of the person responsible for Brian's murder, please contact Detective Roger Spurgeon at 317-327-6210. No,
0: there ain't no doubt, somebody's gotta catch him out, cause I think he did I Just can't prove it. I think he did it, but I just can't prove it. I think he did it, but I just can't.